Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning in California, we have Dr. Garrett Pendergraft. Thanks for being here, Garrett. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you having me on. Good to see you, Garrett. Um, Garrett, ha if you, for those of you who don't watch this on YouTube, I'm going to describe Garrett. Garrett has a huge beard. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't really look like a nerd. Uh, to me, you look like a kind of a lumberjack, kind of a, a brawny, kind of a Navy SEAL with the glasses on kind of thing. <laughs> I've learned uh, I've learned over the years how to um, kind of hide and obscure my nerdiness. Uh, so it's it's definitely there. Um, but I also had just enough of a, a brief kind of side career before getting into academia mm. that, you know, that also helps with the, um, you know, masquerading yes. as uh, not yes, uh, a total nerd. That's right. Yeah. I, yeah, you're you're recalling something it's like an old memory. Um, didn't you work for the CIA at one point? Well, I did. I did do an internship. Yeah, it was uh, I guess it was called a co-op. Um, it's one of these internships where you get school credit for it. Uh, oh. So in college, yes, I was studying computer science. And um, so between my sophomore and junior year, I picked up uh, the, this opportunity to to do some work for uh, for them. Uh, so I actually was out there in uh, working in Langley for I think it was six or seven months so it was the full summer plus the fall semester um, essentially um, it, it was an internship where I got like one course worth of credit for each of those uh, for wow. the summer and one for the fall um, and did you go into a secure building for that yes um, it was just the headquarters I worked in, in headquarters there so most of my um, my work was on the sort of the IT side um, so you know I was uh I, I was looking at, you know, sexy stuff like network diagrams and things like that. Um, <laughs> so that was my, um, but it was, it was a really, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, and, but, you know, I had, I, I studied computer sciences. I wanted to get into visual effects. Uh, so the CIA thing was a really cool opportunity that I enjoyed, um, uh, that I really enjoyed. Uh, and I, I thought about, you know, kind of sh shifting gears and and trying to return for another another stint. Uh, a lot of the interns do come back and either work work full time or do another internship or two with them. Hmm. Um, but I decided to kind of keep pursuing the the visual effects goal. So I did that for a few years. Um, worked at yeah, a, you worked in film, right? Is that right? Right. right. I worked at a, a a visual effects studio called Rhythm Hughes. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, great, great place. They uh, did good work. They won a couple of Oscars for visual effects. Um, wow. They won one for Babe wow. before I got there. Wow. And they won one for Life of Pi after I left. So I kind of held them back, I guess. But um, <laughs> those Oscars, unfortunately, um, they they went out of business uh, shortly after Life of Pi. Oh, economics of the sucks. industry caught up to them. What I remember about that story is the is. The, what sticks out to me is when you told me how long it took you to get to the office. Yeah, there was a, there were a couple of years. I was horrified. Where, I was like, yeah. which is ironic given what I did after. <laughs> right. Yeah. You spent those... time on those freeways too. Uh, yeah. There was a time when my commute was 60 miles from Orange County to LA, yes. um, which is mostly, well, if you, the direct route would be basically four or five the whole way. Yeah. Which is pretty awful. yeah, I remember you telling me that. And I was like, what in the world? How do people do this? Uh, it wasn't. I yeah, was I think so horrified. It was only full time for a year. Uh, okay. So that, was, that helped. But um, yeah, one morning um, uh, and there was no obvious accident or, or fire or anything. Uh, but it took me, I think, two hours and 23 minutes to get to work. 
That was my record, wow. my personal best, wow. personal worst. Now, you were doing that before you started studying philosophy. Is that right? So, or, yes, I did that part time okay. while I was finishing up college. And then I did it full time for a year. And then so I did part time for a year, then full time for a year after graduating. Um, and then my third year, um, I actually um, is when I started uh, grad school for philosophy. So you were one of the first people. I think you might have been one of two of the first people I met at Biola. Yeah, I think I think the same. Um, for me. I think I you remember and Joe Pack. Joe Pack, yeah. Joe Pack, who's now tenured at at LA City College. If okay, I, good. If he's still there, I mean, I'm I'm assuming he's still there. He hasn't I haven't talked to him in a while. But uh, yeah, we t we text every once in a while. We used to keep in uh, stronger contact, um, but uh, we text for every once in a while. I'll throw him a text. He actually lives not too far from me. Okay, and I not that I ever go over there. But <laughs> he's he's busy. He's got how kids LA and... to work. Yeah. So, um, Garrett, I I don't remember if this is a legit memory of of us or not. But did you have a class with David Hunt ever? I did. I did. In fact, um, okay. his class. I had two with him. Um, but the first yeah. one was uh, on free will. That was my first. Yeah. exposure to free will as an academic topic would have would that have been maybe fall of 2003 something like that that sounds right uh, i was um i was there at talbot 02 to 05 okay so. i think i was in that class with you yeah it probably was fall of 03 uh-huh yeah. uh i think justin capes was in that class too i think that's actually. right luke van horn was that's in that funny. class okay uh, so you you know i want to bring up this book because this you just come up with this book and let's see if I can get it to where the Golden Gate Bridge isn't. My, my background <laughs> nice. on Zoom is the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. But so um, you can show it too. I got a copy here too. It's, it's yeah. The, uh, this yeah. there you go. That's a better view. It's called Free Will and Human Agency. It's published by Rutledge, which is uh, a good academic press, a standard, legit academic press for those of you who don't know. And it's 50 puzzles, paradoxes, and thought experiments. Um, delightful book. Um, I've been working through it, and uh, I haven't read every single word, but I've read <laughs> a lot of them, and I've read some of it twice. And uh, the structure of the book is really what stands out to me because I don't, I'm not. I've not seen a book like this. I don't think, I mean, I'm not like an expert in this topic like Garrett is, but the, it's a very helpful structure. The it's got how many chapters, 50 chapters. Okay. So yep. it's got 50 short chapters and each one is <laughs> you you're not going to believe this, some kind of topic or issue or dilemma or paradox that has to do with free will. Well, I, I, I um, that's great that you, um, or I appreciate that you enjoyed, enjoyed the structure. Um, it is kind yes. of a new, new concept. How did you come up with that idea for the, well, let me, hold on. Let me, let me finish. Uh, let me say a little bit more about this. Sure. Sure. The, the structure of the chapter is 
you get like some kind of brief anecdote or story for lack of a better term it's some kind of thought experiment or it could be and so what's interesting is you're either interacting with literature or hollywood or or the literature the academic literature so that this would be very useful for people that are studying philosophy in a serious way because a lot of times what you have to do when you study philosophy and writing philosophy papers for your professor is summarize what people have said which is a lot of work sometimes that's that's usually a lot of the work but you're summarizing what people have said and you're pointing people to the sources it's everything is footnoted and there's there's follow-up um reading recommended some of it has your stuff in it i notice <laughs> unless it was a different garrett pendergraft no i do i did uh i did um fall prey to that temptation and cite myself a couple times you you did and it was like it was funny that you you were like and then this guy says this and it's you it is it is weird to um put your own last name with a parenthetical date after it um yeah it was pretty cool it brought a smile to my face but then okay you're not heavy-handed because you present the issue and this is what might be very helpful for people is sometimes i feel like you kind of tip your hand a little bit but you're not very heavy-handed about your answer and so you leave people free to oh wow that was ironic you leave <laughs> people uh with room to deliberate i can't get i can't get away from these issues yeah it's it's hard the puns are unavoidable so yeah, yeah, intentional yeah. puns that's fine deliberation we'll just, we'll just is one of the chapters yeah let those pass uh, you 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 leave room for people to to sort through and and think through the the response some of the responses and the response section is not that long uh this one for example in chapter the garden of forking paths is that the first one yep, yeah, yep. that's the first one so that the this one is very short it's only what two pages of response and you just kind of lay the groundwork for okay here's some possible resolutions um, and then sometimes you have kind of an unhappy settlement like when you you cite uh fisher and you say this is just kind of like a, a stalemate um mm -hmm. so how did you come up with that uh structure i guess we'll talk yeah. about structure for a while yeah uh, absolutely uh so i i can't take a ton of credit for the idea um, this is a new series that relative is putting together and um, and so it's um, unsurprisingly, it's called uh, Puzzles, Paradoxes and Thought Experiments and Philosophy. And so the first one um, to come out was in Epistemology that came out last year. Um, and that was written by Kevin McCain. And then they have um, they have a few others sort of under contract um, on ethics, aesthetics, philosophy of language, philosophy of mind, um, metaphysics. Uh, and so I was, um, so the editor reached out to me um, to see uh, someone had recommended um, recommended me to them, which I'm thankful for. And they reached out to me and just said, um, you know, would you, is something you'd be interested in doing? Um, do you, and, uh, you know, do you think that you'd be um, capable of doing it and interested in doing it? Um, and if so, that conversation went well. And so um, the editor invited me to submit a proposal with a couple of sample chapters. And. I will say that initially 
the so the idea, which I think is a really good one and is a new uh, creative idea, is let's introduce this field or this subfield of philosophy. Um, but yeah. instead of kind of going through in a standard topical way, let's uh, sort of force ourselves to present every issue in in the context of some some thought experiment or some, as you mentioned, some literary example or some example in film or TV or some historical event, um, or in some cases, it's just a thought experiment that comes from the philosophical literature. Uh, and so it's a it's a good challenge, um, number one, to, you know, if I were doing an intro to free will, um, I might kind of, you know, I would structure it differently. Um, and I don't, but I don't know that the standard structure would be better necessarily, um, because the issues are so intertwined um, that, you know, you can kind of, there's a lot of different starting points. And yeah. Using uh, totally. following this structure, this fifty puzzle structure, kind of forces um, you know thinking about those connections and about the presentation um, in in new ways. Uh, it was initially I was a little bit uh, skeptical of even being able to come up with fifty. Uh, right, so right. It seemed like maybe um, twice does, as many. Does as I each book with. have fifty? Yeah, yeah. So that oh, so wow. they're all fifty puzzles. Um, and so initially I was like, well, maybe I can get twenty, twenty-five. Um, but I kind of, you know, I kept brainstorming. I reached out to some friends uh, for other ideas. Um, and then periodically, I, one would just sort of come to mind that I mm -hmm. would realize, oh, obviously. So like the Garden of Working Paths, um, mm -hmm. in retrospect, is is the way that the book had to start. Like that had to be the first chapter. Mm. Um, and uh, but I didn't really think of that one, as, you know, until I was, you know, a little ways down the down the road. And then in the end, um, there were, I think, in terms of total ideas or total like potential chapters uh ended up with maybe 70 75 and then of course wow. over time like some of them would merge or split or i would realize that one wasn't wasn't you know wasn't going to work out and so um but some of the later ones you know some of the last few that um i that kind of came to mind ended up being included um but then, on, and then on the point about the way each chapter is structured, um, that's also kind of what they were asking for. Um, I, I, I did my chapters a little bit differently than the epistemology volume, but the same basic idea, which is, um, here's the case. We're just going to present the case, try to tell it in an interesting and engaging way, uh, and then um, raise uh, or present the philosophical issues raised by the case. So here's this story, or here's this thought experiment. Here's why here's why it's relevant to free will. Uh, and then as you mentioned, um, just a brief treatment of the discussion of that issue in the philosophical literature. So the responses section is basically, all right, here's this, given this issue comes up in this sort of thought experiment, right. here's how the you know professional philosophers have <laughs> around a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, I tried to stay neutral. Um, oh, and then the other, the other point is, um, and then the recommended reading, the idea there, which I think is really helpful too, especially for those maybe being introduced to the field, um, you know, a lot of times the recommend, you know, a lot of times these recommended reading lists can get a little bit long. Maybe it's like a, a, an entire annotated bibliography. And that can be a little bit overwhelming because the question typically is like, all right, well, this was interesting. What do I want to read next? Not like, what are the hundred things that, you know, that I'll read over the next 10 years if I have the time. Right. Uh, so right. tried to keep the re recommended reading um, list pretty short, maybe three to six uh, recommendations. A lot of them, as I'm sure you've noticed, um, are things like 
Stanford encyclopedia entries and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So some of them are introductory and some of them are like seminal, seminal works in the field. Some of them are, um, sometimes I'll, I'll mention a, a podcast episode. Um, so there's things like that, that, um, the idea would be, um, here's the issue or here's the case here. Are the issues raised by it. Here's a brief little taste of how it's been discussed. And then here's some things to read next. If you're still interested. Yes. And did you have your to... own, did you have your own students in mind when you wrote this? Uh, I did. What yeah. would be helpful so, for them. Yeah. I like was kind of thinking of my, yeah. They're like that they're, they're okay. Well, you teach at Pepperdine in Malibu. There's your office there behind you. Yeah. Yeah. And no window, but I do have a, uh, a nice no window. <laughs> That's probably maybe a good thing. You get, maybe yeah. get more work done. I don't know, but Less you're down in there. You're down there in the bunker there in Hute. Exactly. And you're, you're hunkered down over this and <laughs> you, you're, so I bring it up because you have undergrads and some of them are very good and they go on to really good philosophy programs in, in across the country. Some are at Stanford, some are at Yale, et cetera, et cetera. And yep. some may uh, attach to this material in similar to the way you did when you were in grad school graduate school and so the i just was i thought you know i'll bet he has his own students in mind for this because that's right yeah i um probably the the kind of like core target audience would be you know the the senior capstone seminar student so the philosophy major who's getting ready to write their senior thesis um or maybe like a first year uh, graduate student who um is trying to get introduced to the field um i do so I think that's probably the the core audience. I try to um, try to make it relatively accessible, even to someone who doesn't have philosophy background. Yes, uh, yeah. In let retrospect, me, let, let me say something about that really quick. I sure. think that's an important point because uh, now I did have a course in in metaphysics of agency in graduate school, like the one I just mentioned with Dr. David Hunt, at, at, who was at Whittier, but he was, he was teaching at Biola that semester. Yep. And that's his deal. Uh, David Hunt is like, that's all what he does. And um, so I don't, I don't know how much of this, I, I know that I was able to read this book quick, quicker, quicker because I had that course. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, and I've had other experience in philosophy, but, I have to say that as as I was thinking through this, as I was reading it, and I think it is accessible to people who have never had any kind of training in free will. It might take a little bit longer to get through, and it might some things might like cultural things of philosophy might seem a little strange just because of the way philosophers think and how they work through things. And it might be a little disorienting to figure out what's going on. But once you get the kind of cultural stuff, uh, what I mean by cultural stuff is there's a temperament. There's a temperament in philosophy of, um, oh, look, this is weird, and we're not going to get emotional about it, right? You're, because some of this would be quite emotional. I mean, like, for example, the pre-crime thing, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. You, you know, you... Uh, Maybe I can hit, kill two birds with one stone and talk about 
a particular example in the book. Absolutely. By the way, that was for trivia's sake, that was the last idea, uh, I guess. So that was of all the chapters, that was the latest to be entered into the in that you know into the 50 and of course once i once i started once it came to mind i was like oh yeah obviously this is um an interesting case that raises important issues and so so anyway so i had i forget which one i bumped out um to make room for that but um, anyway i'm having a hard time finding i i lost my uh my (laughs) i took my my uh that one is page 207 Oh yeah, there you go. Problems with priest. Okay, so page yeah. two hundred seven. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so this is like you. This could even be like, like philosophical bedtime reading. Yeah, actually, because a, a chapter or two and yep. Okay, so problems with pre-punishment. Um. Now you have a very strong summary here um of the movie minority report the whole idea behind it if you haven't seen that movie it's about the concept is that these clairvoyants can see into the future and or at least people believe they can (laughs) and uh their testimony basically of crime that will happen in the future is the basis for apprehending the suspect that's not guilty yet. Is that fair to say, you think? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, right. So I think that's, and that's actually the question. Yeah, they haven't committed the crime right. yet. So the they question haven't. would be, are they guilty? Um, yes, that that's point. the question. Yeah. 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 Okay. So <laughs> what's the issue with this? The, the question is, can you punish them before the, the crime? Right. So that's, it's, it's one of these cases where, and as you, as you mentioned, it is, the, that, that would be, that would make me emotional. I mean, I got emotional during that movie. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does, the movie is a really excellent portrayal of, um, I mean, it, it goes in a little bit of a different direction um, with, you know, with, I guess what it's portraying, but it does. Yeah. So the, the philosophical style um, is to sort of, um, take a step back and detach a little bit and just consider. But I, but I think that the puzzle here is mm-hmm. that, um, you know, I think the best puzzles are ones where you have, you can formulate a really clear question and um, yeah. both of the competing answers can seem obvious in a certain mindset or to a certain person. Um, and so in this case, yep. um, there's one mindset which says, well, obviously that would be unjust to commit uh or to punish someone who hasn't committed a crime yet yeah and so there's just it's kind of a no-brainer like and actually the way you say it in the book is you leave the word yet out you you say who hasn't committed a crime right right because um if they are and that's actually really yeah so let me come back to that because that's a i think a great point that i still wonder about as far as this case goes Mm -hmm. um so Seems like on one hand, obviously, it would be unjust to punish someone before um, just on the basis of foreknowledge of a crime. But right. then on the other hand, um, if you sort of ratchet up the reliability of the prediction and you get something close to certainty, um, then it's it can seem obvious that, well, look, here, here's a murder that you know is going to happen and you can prevent it. And that's sort of like one of the basic requirements of morality is that you prevent evil from happening if you can yeah and so 
I think it's really interesting that you have these sort of two simple arguments which kind of push in opposite directions and they can both seem very compelling. Um, so that's why I like it. And, but I still, there is a, a weird thing about this case is that, um, and the movie sort of glosses over this, uh, but to your point about, you know, the crime hasn't happened, the way that they, the way that the movie envision, and the way that most people think of pre-punishment to the extent that they do um, is as a, um, yeah, as crime prevention, but yeah, um, for it to be actual punishment, the crime still has to happen, right? Yeah. So if, if you, if right. strictly speaking, you wanted to have a department of pre-crime, if you wanted to punish crime ahead of time, then you would, then all you're doing is just changing the order of things you're yeah. punishing and then they commit it because they have to commit the crime for the punishment to be just. Um, and, but of course, in the case, most people think of the crime as being prevented and not happening at all, but then like you're punishing for intentions or right, right. something else, which gets into more luck, uh, another chapter. Um, mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a fascinating case. Yeah. Well, and, and also if you're, if the type of punishment that you're talking about is incarceration, mm -hmm. then they might've been prevented from doing the crime, in which case they'll never be guilty of it. Yeah, exactly. So, and, so, and that's how it's portrayed. Um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. Um, the movie's been out for a while anyway, but that's how it's portrayed in the movie is they're apprehended prior to sometimes like um, almost on the verge of committing the crime and they're just put away sort of immobilized um, in kind of like stasis for, I don't know, the rest of their natural life or, at yeah. some, you know, and so, yeah, it never happened. The crime never happens. Um, and so it's kind of this trippy thing is someone's being punished on the basis of this kind of counterfactual action yeah. that they never, they never actually perform. They were going to, we can assume that they were right. in fact going to. Um, although again, you can fiddle with the reliability of the predictor and, and yeah. changes the, you also, you also uh, avoid alternative uh, theories of punishment. This gets really like in, in philosophy. It's like every stone you unturn is like more stuff. And that can right. be very frustrating. Actually, it can it can feel like you never make any progress. I think that's kind of the cultural point I was trying to get at earlier was for but if for the curious kitten that's interested in this they have to feel like there's some progress because otherwise uh why would you i mean if it's a lot of work right if you're if you just enjoy reading philosophy then it would the enjoyment factor would be enough to read it but but um the feeling of making progress i think you allow the reader to feel like there's progress being made here because what you do is you clear away and you clarify the several issues, many issues of about four dozen of them. Hmm. And then you say, I'm not going to do the progress for you, but here's a way you could go. What do you think? And yeah, and no, I think that's I, I about as good that. as you can do on this. <laughs> yeah, it is true. I mean, that I think that it's easy to conceptualize progress in maybe a, a scientific or mathematical way or an engineering yes. engineering way. Yeah, um, yeah, right. That's sort of what we're accustomed to do. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, when you're when you're building when you're building something, whether it's a bridge or a circuit or whatever, um, there's a very clear endpoint. And if it works as designed, then success. It can always be better. But in philosophy, yeah, success is a little bit harder to get a handle on. I think yeah. it's um, 
I, th- I think it's just a lot more modest and and it's conceptual and abstract. And so, as you were to your point, it can be a success to simply identify that oh, this particular case raises multiple issues. And so, just separating out the relevant issues um, and identifying sort of what right. you would want to think about if you wanted to address those issues. I mean, that's right. that's progress. That's success um, yeah, because. Yeah, yeah. You've clarified. I mean, this is this is all stuff that you know. Um, so right. I think it's yeah. I think it. I think and maybe this is something where philosophers as a group um, have maybe not done a great job of of kind of promoting or marketing the discipline um, mm. because you know and it, because the more that we can kind of inc- you know this is sort of like Bertrand Russell the value of philosophy kind of stuff. Um, the more that we can appreciate the i guess the small victories that happen in philosophy and the right. the sort of intrinsic value of those small victories um then i think the more we can motivated to dig into stuff like this and and be willing yeah so you you think about this for a long time and maybe you have like a lot of additional clarity but maybe you have like one small conclusion that you've made about what to think, but the rest of it's still up in the air and wide open. And that, you know, that's, that's progress. It's, it's not maybe as satisfying as um, certain other types of progress, but. Yeah. Sometimes it comes uh, what, what was the one where you talked about epistemic settling and practical settling? I was yeah. looking for my note in that I could find that it, was sorry. the deliberation chapter. Uh, so that would be chapter four, uh, oh, chapter six, chapter six, Does deliberation require uncertainty. I don't know why that came up to me as as a as a clear example of p- progress, but I thought that uh, it was is very satisfactory at the end there where you were you were saying uh, on page thirty three the bottom there mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where you quote yourself yeah I do that's I funny um, these what these examples help us realize is that there are some cases in which the two types of settling so you you make this distinction and i know that maybe you don't understand what this means but just hold on a sec if you, you listeners here two types of settling come from different sources and when the types of settling come from different sources there's nothing preventing the epistemic settling from happening prior to the practical settling. <laughs> so there's progress right there. I, I thought that was very helpful. And yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it is puzzling. This is a deliberation. Well, maybe we should talk about this example here. The, what, what's the issue with deliberation and free will? Yeah, so this one is, I would say, a um, there's this assumption that deliberation always requires um, uncertainty. And it's kind of a, it's almost treated as a truism or as a conceptual truth. Um, just that, yeah. well, the the way deliberation works is it's incompatible with with certainty or incompatible with knowledge of what you're going to do. So never mind about certainty, but um, and it and and so there's some. Um, this is something that was maybe a little bit more widely discussed, you know, earlier in the 20th century, mid 20th century, uh, but the. And so there's a few people who just kind of like make this kind of like articulate this assumption that, well, if you know what you're going to do, it's impossible, like literally impossible to deliberate about what you're going to do. And, um, 
And actually, the in many ways, the seeds of this chapter did arise in uh, in that David Hunt seminar. Um, wow! Because Good one memory. of the so one of the examples, uh, or Randy Clark has some examples. So essentially, the claim is you know it's impossible to deliberate while knowing um, what the results of that deliberation process are going to be. It, it's inter- that's that's interesting for all sorts of reasons in political science, I think. Like, I've been a juror before. Ah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting question. Can you deliberate well as a juror, even if you know how you're going to vote? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And, so, you know, and, the, and in fact, I think we discussed, I don't know if this was, I don't think this was in the literature, but I think, in David Hunt's seminar, we kind of discussed something like this class action lawsuit um, mm-hmm. that um, the, the examples I end up using, and yeah. you know, sort of an analogous or an adjacent type of case to the one you're mentioning is, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a yeah. If you're a juror and the evidence is clear, yeah. then you you could very well have all the evidence. Uh, sorry, the so there's the evidence in the case, right? And then you could right. have. Um, you know, as much information as you need to know what your your verdict is going to be. Um, but the the claim of the chapter, uh, and this is one, yeah, I do try to, for the most part, stay neutral. Um, this is one chapter where I kind of do maybe show my cards <laughs> a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. But I just think that there is this distinction and there's nothing in principle that prevents um, prevents us from weighing reasons for and against a particular choice um particular decision um even if we have sort of independent it has to be independent for it to work but right um, if we have independent reasons to know what we're going to choose um then we can still we can still know that but that doesn't there's nothing there's 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 nothing there that kind of like reaches out and puts the clamps down on our liberation process um you know these people like richard taylor and carl Janet, they would say that the way I'm describing it would be a case of where like deliberation sort of um, is closed, becomes impossible. But then if you do actually consider reasons for and against, then you've, you've sort of lost your knowledge. So they would kind of describe it as a case of like back and forth, but you well, it's either like you're deliberating without knowledge or once you have knowledge, the deliberation is sort of a fake or a sham. But um, you know, if the sources of the sources of settling are genuinely independent, then I don't see why you can't um, settle things epistemically and and figure out what you're going to do. I, I think the testimony example is a good one. Maybe like someone who knows you really well could predict your choice, right? And you and you could trust that and come to know what you're going to do on the base of that testimony. They're using different different sorts of reasons to make their to draw their conclusion that they've been right. to you. That doesn't affect your weighing of the reasons. I I I I think this would be a good time to uh, maybe pop some a little bit of a twist on on the case and see how you'd handle it. Okay. Um, let's say that somebody knows, and in the in the example you give, uh, I think it's is it a wife that knows? Yes. It's the yeah, wife so... that knows. The wife knows how her husband pretty well, and she's like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna accept these terms of the settlement and he still thinks he's deliberating well 
he and he might still be deliberating, but he thinks he's deliberating. He thinks he doesn't know, but she does. She, uh, based on her testimony, he comes to believe that he will uh, accept the terms of the settlement while he's deliberating. He still deliberates. So he's got this um, two things going on. Now, let's change the change a little bit and say, say that he's a racist, for example. Let's say that his wife believes he's a racist. Okay. And it's a it's a jury thing. He's not supposed to be talking about it, but he is talking about it. So all of you people don't talk about this stuff with your <laughs> you're not supposed to. You're supposed right. to deliberate, you know, uh, yep. in secret. You're not supposed to make up your mind, but let, let's, you know, we're all human beings. It does happen. Um so let's say that the the defendant in a criminal case is like uh some kind of race that she believes that he thinks is uh is an inherently inferior to their race however you want to define racism okay let's say he meets the definition of that and so she says well you're gonna obviously find the guy guilty <laughs> uh can he deliberate really on on the on the merits of the of the case you think yeah that's a that's a good question i think um one answer it's a little bit racier no, yeah. no pun intended but right so it it could be um i haven't thought about whether those kinds of attitudes i mean those attitudes themselves the racist attitudes um might undermine certain kinds of deliberation or at least degrade certain kinds of deliberation right so if I'm already primed, and this this happens with the, um, you know, a lot of times we make we make snap judgments on the basis, and and we do that on the basis of factors that aren't aren't rational, right? Um, and so so that's not deliberative, partly because it's a snap judgment and not a deliberative judgment, but also because the fact you know it could, there could be some time that passes. It's just the factors that mm -hmm. render the decision or produce the decision, or rational factors. So. So I guess this is this is sort of one of those um, speaking of philosophical culture, you know, kind of like a little bit of an unsatisfying it depends answer. But mm -hmm. I would say if the case is filled out um, so that the racist attitudes um, actually affect the reasoning process in some way, right. maybe it prevents him from seeing evidence clearly uh, or from seeing evidence at all, or maybe it forces a certain interpretation of evidence uh -huh. or explanation. Right. Of evidence. Right. So then I can see. Um, the deliberation happening, but not being rational deliberation. Um, and gotcha. so, okay, yeah. And then, but I, I think if you, if it's, um, if the, if his racist uh, attitudes and beliefs, if they're not severe enough uh, to totally undermine deliberation, then what I would want to say is that um, if you think about the kind of evidence, like maybe it's, um, Maybe it's a certain. Uh, I'm trying to think what a sort of like a, a standard paradigm case. Um, I mean, so fingerprint evidence. Uh, I mean, I guess what I'd like to say is that, um, is that maybe the fingerprint evidence doesn't match or something, uh, and so right. yeah, um, where it would be yeah, obviously or, irrational or, to convict, or or it does match, but 
Yeah, maybe here's here's a better better maybe um, variation or not variation, but a better way of of what I was saying is was that let's imagine the fingerprint evidence does match, but there's some suspicious circumstances around its you know appearance on the scene or or sort of like there's reason to think maybe it was planted, um, you know, even if his wife knows that he's going to uh, vote to convict, um, and she knows that on the basis of his racist attitudes. Um, and she tells him that, and he, you know, it's a little bit weird for someone to be so self-conscious, so sort of self-aware about the racism so that to like say, oh, um, you, uh, I think you're right, actually, I'm going to have to vote to convict just because I'm a racist. Um, so that's a little <laughs> bit, you know, hard to, but, but if, right, if that's right, possible, right. so we're having, we're trying to yeah. ration his knowledge. Um, and I still just don't see, as long as the deliberation is, can still happen in a rational way. I don't see why he can't think, well, the, the fingerprints do match, but it is kind of suspicious. Um, yeah. You know, I think we sort of, we already know the outcome or we're, we're supposing that we know the outcome, but I don't think that that knowledge sort of reaches, reaches into his mind and like prevents him from, um, from, con from sort of thinking for at least a minute, oh wait, right. maybe, that, maybe these fingerprints right. were planted. Yeah. Um, well, so in, a in a criminal case, you're supposed to reason about the particulars of that individual and the circumstances uh, that are in that with that individual, allegedly, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so it, it doesn't the, the very uh, type of reasoning is not supposed to rely on um, assumptions or attitudes about groups. Right. Um, now, I mean, and weighing like uh, testimony, it might that might come into play. Like, would that be something that a person like like that would likely do? Or, you know, in terms of credibility and believability, I guess it's kind of tricky how you would cash it out. You know, like yeah, I think there is a bit of a dilemma. Um, so I think you're right. If if it's if what's really driving your decision or your you know your verdict is yeah. an assumption about a group. Right, you know, right, racist assumption. Then, to that extent, I think we have reason to doubt the rationality of the deliberation. Yeah, um, okay. but if that but to sense. the extent that it's not actually driving, then then that weighing reasons seems possible, and nothing about um, you know knowing the outcome seems to seems to preclude that. I mean, granted, those usually go together. Usually, as I say in the chapter. They usually go together. You come to know what you're going to choose is by choosing. So usually, right. stimic settling and the practical settling go together. But um, as long as the uh, practical settling is still TBD, yeah, you know, some there there are all kinds of different evidence, and evidence can come in from another source and give you knowledge of what you're going to do right. without affecting your deliberations. Um, now, of course, th that last step, when I say without affecting deliberations, I mean, that's sort of the issue. So it's kind of hard to, it kind of comes down to um, someone could just dig their heels in and say, well, no, as soon as you have that knowledge, then it becomes impossible. But, you know, when you think about the actual process, the mental process of considering reasons for and against, um, we seem to, you know, there's not, there's no sort of, um, there's no kind of felt barrier there um, right. in the way that we do encounter other kinds of barriers. Like I can't deliberate about whether to jump over 
the CAC, the building my office is in, um, three story <laughs> building, right? There's just no, there, there is a barrier there. Like I can, yeah. I could imagine myself doing it, um, right. but I can't right, deliver. Right. I just, it, it is impossible to deliberate about that. And I don't know how to articulate what that barrier is like, what it feels like to sort of bump up against that barrier. But whatever that is, um, it's not present in these other kinds of cases where you just come to know what you're going to do on some other basis, um, or so I say. Does your uh, background in computer science inform your interest in this topic in some way, like coding? Is it something yeah. to do with coding? I think in in subtle ways, um, I appreciate you know sort of algorithmic approaches, and I appreciate I appreciate. Um, you know, I think that's one, and this is more just kind of general affinities between uh, engineering and computer science um, and philosophy. You know, I think that there's a shared appreciation for precision uh, and yeah. for, um, and there's there's some shared interests too, as far as things like consciousness of, of AI and stuff like that. But right, um, right, right. Yeah. So it's, I don't know if it's specifically connected to my interest in free will, but certainly to my um affinity for you know these kinds of approaches to the problems well it seems like um there's there's a number of ways you could approach the free will issue and if you're coming at this with with maybe just a very minimal background of just common sense and maybe some theology stuff like okay calvinism versus not calvinism or something um it seems like you could have a book like that just says, okay, here's what free will is. And, oh, there's a scholar that disagrees with that definition and which one is right. And then maybe here's some puzzles or whatever. But this book invites you right into the puzzles right away. And so the first foot forward isn't like some de definition or even a history of dialogue uh which can be a little be a little bit overwhelming to the beginning beginner student because you you know you're there's a lot of people talking about this and and they mm -hmm. they write a lot there's a lot of ink spilled and it seems like it's kind of exhausting to go through all of that and and then it's like well what the hell am I going to say but this this approach is cool because you get right into letting people think freshly of the examples themselves and also adopt first of all come to, to to awareness that this is puzzling there's some kind of intuition you have from common sense maybe but then that doesn't do all the work for you on it it doesn't get you there and I think a lot of people think, oh, yeah, free will is just a matter of like kind of looking within nasal gazing. And I know all the answers about free will. That's not really how it works. Yeah, um, no, good. Thank you. I, that is that was kind of the goal. And, and that's one reason behind the kind of the ordering of the sections. You yeah. know, I think a typical as okay, you, yeah. so as you Fatalism. said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So as you said, um, a typical introduction might start either historically or might start with, you know, the sort of basic freedom versus determinism. Yeah. And, um, and so the, the historical stuff doesn't show up until I guess, chapter 11, you know, get back to the swerving atoms. And, um, and then I thought that the, the fatalism stuff is a right. little bit more, um, a little bit closer to home, a little bit more starting with the common sense. Um, you know, that's mm -hmm. sort of the, I guess the nod to that, you know, I was calling that first part, um, referring to sources of 
existential angst, um, you know, fatalism being one of those. So yeah, that was very much the the goal um, was yeah, let's just um, let's just dive right in and try to kind of tease out some of these threads from ordinary. Yeah. Things. I, I think pedagogically it works well because psychologically to give the student strength and even the regular person just reading this to to move forward uh they have to adopt the puzzle for themselves they right. have they have to be puzzled themselves because <laughs> then then it's like it's that itch it's that do you remember which puzzle it was for you uh, that got you into it um I think it was Is it in here? <laughs> well, yeah, it's probably broadly speaking, it's probably the freedom for knowledge. Uh, so that would be yeah, chapter yeah, yeah. Eight, which I include, you know, as, as theological fatalism. And that was again, we talked about that in David Hunt's uh class. So yep. so I think either so it based for me it was it was the uh let's see. That seems right. Yes, page no, forty. There's no, there's no pictures in this, Garrett. And there's no pie graphs, there's no statistics, there's no That's, facts. <laughs> there's no it's just opinions uh all the way through yeah sorry about that uh, I thought next you were going to follow the science and i was really <laughs> disappointed well okay. i did enjoy um i did enjoy uh i'll just say chapter 26 uh that's like what page one uh, uh 134, 134 yeah. that's where i get to talk about the science you know libits, oh, libit cool. experiments and and you know, it's. I hope we it's. We got to get to the daily wavester. That was a fun okay. one. That was sure. a fun we'll one. Yeah, we'll. Yeah, that was that a fun one. one to write. It was one of my favorites to write. Um, um, yeah. So for me, it was freedom and foreknowledge. I, I was interested in the tensions between theological doctrines and philosophical or scientific reasoning or or doctrines, you might say. Um, and so that shows up in the freedom and foreknowledge. And then I also. Um, I don't I don't talk about divine providence as much in the book, but I do mention the the first chapter of part three. So that's chapter 25. Um, that would be page 129. Um, there you kind of have this um, maybe standard sort of Western secular view of free will as right. more choices. Oh, and then you have the more one. Augustinian. Yes, I, that was one of my favorite chapters, actually. Good, yeah. I, because of the historical value of the yeah, material. yeah. So I would say for me, it was the it was kind of the the surface level, and sometimes it runs pretty deep. But the tension between theological doctrine and um, philosophical or scientific conclusion or argumentation. I love uh, your I love your subtle humor too. I have to say it right now because. I have this little smiley face here and there dotted there. And you, you say um, it takes you off guard for me anyway. But uh, <laughs> one person who would presumably accept the offer of moral perfection is St. Augustine, although perhaps not yet. <laughs> I, and I, I had that in like Doc Holliday's voice from the movie. I know it's like totally not scholarly to think of That's it. But I know it comes from the confessions, but right, right. Well, no, that's, you know, I do like Fine. to people who um you know people such as yourself who have taken the time and the effort to uh, to make it that far in the book or just to engage in any of the chapters yeah i like to try to um spruce it up a little bit yeah toss uh you know toss them a few uh, enjoyable uh, tasty bones to nibble on or whatever um Very yeah so it's I, it's it's fun to kind of sneak in uh sneak in attempts at humor um i don't know how many of them actually land but I, i'm glad a few <laughs> have landed with you so that's 
Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, you can overdo humor. Um, and I've never been very good at figuring out where that line is. So mm. that's. Yeah, I think for me, it. Uh, I just, um, as long as I try to make it as dry as possible, then yeah, it, yeah then it's sort safe. of it's either uh, right. So it's either going to be Bad totally humor. missed or appreciated, um, sort of as a as a little hidden Easter egg, and then I don't know. Um, I, I do have the the joke I included in the one chapter, which is you know not a very good joke, but <laughs> I don't know if you read that one. The which um, one? The neutrino uh, or the um, so this is in uh, talking about the um, the swerving. It's actually in the oh no, not swerving atoms. It's the one um, where uh, it's in the practical reason i'm trying to remember which of the scientific experiments uh so i can get a page number for you um but i talk about um so there's a couple places where i talk about time travel mm -hmm. and um the i may have to i may have to find it if you recall it, it yeah let me know later we'll get to it uh because anyway i'll have to look well, but yes yeah, we'll go back to divine foreknowledge someone is listening to this and is thinking, okay, what's the issue there? Uh, they're holding on. They want to know what is the problem there with divine foreknowledge? Does that undermine our freedom? So what's the, what's the issue? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, yeah. So the, yeah, this is one of those kind of perennial puzzles people have been thinking about. And the, I think the basic issue is that you have uh, at the most basic level, you have this, um, traditional doctrine of divine omniscience mm -hmm. and um, for a long right. time and and still today a lot of um, a lot of those operating in a you know kind of monotheistic tradition uh, believe that God has exhaustive foreknowledge of what we're going to do mm -hmm. and and also is infallible with respect to that foreknowledge Right, And so if you tease out the implications of that, then it means that for any choice you make at any time, then God um, already knew that you would make that choice. Um, right. Assuming that God's mind works in some way roughly analogous to the human mind, obviously there's lots of differences, but assuming that God has right. something like beliefs in his mind, mm -hmm. then for any, any choice we make, well, go back as far as you want. Uh, mm -hmm. 10 minutes, 10 years, 10,000 years, 10 million years. And God believed that you were going to do that thing. Eat Cheerios, um, eat Cheerios this morning. Right. So Use whole milk instead of almond milk. There you go. Yep. Um, and so given that God has that belief that sort of buried in the past, um, it that seems you, like you would eat Cheerios today. Correct. With, with whole milk. Yeah. With whole milk. Yeah. At a certain time. At a certain time. So given that belief, it seems like in, at the moment of pouring those Cheerios, in order to be able to do something different, choose the yeah. almond milk or or a different cereal even. Or a different break. shirt. Yeah. <laughs> to do that, you would have to somehow be able to reach back into the past right. and change God's change belief. Um, you can't, or, you can't or make, make him wrong, but you right, can't yeah. do that, right? You can't so, make God wrong. Exactly. So with you know, maybe, maybe my wife believes I'm going to have Cheerios. Um, I, I can just easily falsify that belief by making a different choice. Um, perhaps going with the grape nuts instead. 
but when it comes to God, doesn't seem like um, we can we can falsify God's belief. So that's the right. you know the way I characterize it in the chapter um, kind of follows um, what Zagzebski does in her um, Stanford entry. But I try to simplify and um, and sort of streamline the argument so it has just a few different ingredients, which basically is just this sort of like there's this belief of God's that's kind of buried there in the past. Right. And as you sort of, and that, and that, and so there's like a necessity there uh, we have no control over yeah. and that necessity kind of transfers uh, through to our choice. And if our choice was necessitated before right. we were born. I remember freaking out when I first thought about this, I remember I was wigging out. I was like, Oh no, it is. I mean, yeah, right. I think, I think because I mean you're you're talking about you're not talking about Cheerios just talk to Cheerios you're talking about eternal damnation you're talking about heaven and hell you're talking about moral responsibility uh, right God yeah I mean couldn't the stakes, refrain from sinning because he knew you were going to sin yeah the stakes are high um, so I agree that one is that's one where you kind of have to. I mean, this is one, I think this is where you get into some of the benefits or advantages of maybe right. the more detached style of philosophy, which is that um, there is something, and this is why it's in the fatalism and the sort of existential angst chapter uh, part of the book, yeah. section of the book, because yeah, if you really think about it, it does, you do start to wonder about whether, you know, our choices are, um, are what we think they are, are what they seem to be as free as they seem to be. Um but then if you kind of take a step back and say, okay, well, what's the argument that I, I literally don't have free will in this situation? Um, what is the argument that starts with God's belief or starts with God's foreknowledge and um, gets to the conclusion that I can't do otherwise, that I have no free will. Um, and if you look at the argument, well, there are, there are some places that you can kind of poke and prod at it. Um, as I mentioned in the responses, you know, there's, there's some reasons and there's some, some of them are more intuitive than others. Some of them are kind of, um, get pretty esoteric or kind of abstract, but, um, you know, so, so I think there's, can, there's can a... you, in case somebody is just like having a heart attack listening to this, <laughs> can you, uh, alleviate any of the, the anxiety? I mean, is there any kind of, do you want to tip your hand on that at all? Well, I've always, as... been, I've always been attracted to the, um, so I guess I would say, so the, the first thing I would say to alleviate the concern is that, yeah. There are a lot of really smart people um, who, and by the way, a lot of whom take very seriously um, these Christian doctrines. Right. Who, do you? Uh, I do. Yeah. I do think God has foreknowledge and okay. um, infallible foreknowledge. Um, so you, believe I don't, God, you believe God exists? I do. I believe that God exists and and has foreknowledge um, among other attributes and, and, uh, and uh, other things. Uh, and so, there are lots of people who have looked at this at the argument um, and have have found good reason to reject it um, or what they take to be a good reason to reject it. So so I would say that it's you know, it's not like a consensus view that it's not just a sort of consensus view that, yep, if God exists, then there's no free will. Um, it's there, there. So there there are lots of right. lots of reflective uh, people out there, some of whom are are. Um, deeply committed to to Christian theology who are able to, to reconcile um, divine foreknowledge and free will. So that would be like the first point is just, it's an open, it's still an open question and the, the stakes are high. The concerns are real. Um, the argument seems compelling, maybe at first blush, 
Um, but there are there are some things, there are some moves available to you. Um, and the question is just going to be, in the end, do you find any of them plausible enough to to kind of address address the worry? As far as the specifics of the different responses, I mean, I've always been attracted to the um, some sort of kind of counterfactual dependence uh, or some sort of um, speaking of earlier, we were talking about different kinds of progress. You know, I think that one important distinction is between um, our choices, depending on God's beliefs and God's beliefs, depending on our choices. Right. Yeah. And I think you want to be careful to, you know, depending on your, someone's view of providence, you know, you want to be careful to kind of preserve uh, God's meticulous providence or God's providential control over, um, over the events in the world, including our actions. But um, yeah, it's plausible. Uh, and so some of the more recent stuff has attributed this to um, origin, going back to origin. There's some of it that shows up in, in uh, William of Occam and the Occamist solution. But I think the idea is that, well, um, it is true that, that God knows what we're going to do, but um, it's not true that what we're going to do depends on God's belief. Um, so there's, so that, because that's just not the way, the way the arrow goes. Now we have to be careful about not giving ourselves power to change the past. Like we talked about earlier. Yep. Um, yep. But you know, that, de- that counterfactual dependence, um, which shows up in the, the daily Webster chapter as well. Um, yeah. Uh, is that is something that, that we can coherently talk about uh, um, in a way that in, that sort of gives us, gives us this kind of, it, it's not an actual power over God's beliefs, but it's this counterfactual power over God's beliefs. Um, and so to some extent, what God believes depends on what we do, um, or in some sense it does. And, uh, and so I think that that, so we can just say things like, and this is, this is, this is not a, doesn't have to be a philosophically loaded statement, but I can say, well, I chose to eat Cheerios this morning. Um, mm. and, Therefore, God believed that I would, uh, but I could have chosen to eat grape nuts. And if I had chosen, then God would have believed that I was going to eat grape nuts. And so, and that seems, that's just that statement. Obviously you can unpack it in various philosophical ways, but that just seems to be kind of um, intuitively true. You know, I did this one thing, of course, God knew what I was going to do, but I also had this other choice and I had made that choice then God would have known that. So you look at two possible worlds that include these two choices and in yeah. both worlds, as it turns out, God's past belief corresponds to what I did. And that's just what it means to say that God has foreknowledge, um, is to say that in any given world, whatever someone does um, is going to be, there's going to be a belief or something uh, of God's that... Uh, do, you think that do you think that the A theory of time works with that way of looking at it? Does that, uh, Or does it depend on the B theory? Uh, there's two different ways of looking at time and you know one yeah is... i think it i think it can i i don't um i'll confess that um i haven't thought as much about the metaphysics of time in relation to this i mean i do think that there's um yeah i think it can work either way um it, it's a it's a more natural fit i suppose given a b theory mm-hmm. of time yeah. but um, just to complicate it even more people. That's right. That's right. So it is true. How you think about time, whether yeah. God's in time or outside of time, that's another yeah. thing, you know, like right, right, right. if God's beliefs in the past are fixed in virtue of being in the past, well, 
if God is outside of time, then are his beliefs fixed in virtue of being outside of time? You know, mm-hmm. is the realm of timelessness just as right. fixed as the past is? Yeah. Um, well, we don't know. Um, it's hard is, to say. Is time like a location? It's because it sounds like a lot of times people talk about time as if, I know this is outside of the scope of your book, but it does kind of, kind of raises the book. Any philosophy book will raise a host of issues outside of the, the right. book. That's just right. how it works. And laws that way too. But uh, uh, a lot of times people talk about time as if it's uh, an anal- analogous to location. Like that's why we get the, the people talk about time travel. Um, traveling is really a location kind of a, a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about God being outside of time as if it's a location. Right. right. Yeah, it's like it's almost like a four-dimensional block, um, right? And uh, or yeah, is that really or, the yeah. right way to think about time? It's an interesting yeah. question. I agree, and I, and and um and it shows up in these interesting puzzles. This is not a free will puzzle, but you know, puzzles about like material constitution. You know, the statue, yeah. the lump of clay, and the statue. Right. Like, what's going on there? Do you have two things in the same place at the same time? Do you have something that just changed its its essence? Um, you know, and anyway, so that, so that I think you get the same sorts of questions. Well, how does, how does time work here? Do you, is there, is this one thing extended through time and at any given moment, you're just looking at a slice of it. Um, I think these are all really interesting questions. They apply even more, you know, maybe, maybe even more pressingly to human persons and not right, just statues right, right. and lumps of clay, but yeah. Let's, uh, let's do a couple more. Let's, um, um, they just happen to be right next to each other. One is reading Emma, okay, and the Daily Wavester. I don't know which one you want to take uh, first, but I thought that reading Emma was good because it gets into the issue of the word "can." The word "can" is just kind of a a pain in the butt word in English. Not clear it what what it means. It uh, is, but you. Th- I mean, that's another example of making progress. Is when you figure out that these words are tricky and they have different meanings, and if you can nail down the issue with the meaning of a word, that's actually progress. Um, and Absolutely. then the day daily wavester, which is about surfing. So yeah, and you're in Malibu, so we it's almost like we're obligated. Absolutely, got to cover that, that one. That yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about those. And by the way, yeah. the um the joke, the bad joke, is uh, chapter oh. fourteen, uh, page seventy two. So it's um, the joke about the tachyon. Oh, yes. The bartender yeah. says, I'm great. sorry, but we don't serve fascism light particles here. Oh, that is great. Yeah. yeah, yeah I got a little smiley on that one. <laughs> that is <laughs> anyway, awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm glad you found that. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So reading Emma, uh, chapter 28, uh, we can start with that one. Um, and yeah, I think this is a classic, classic sort of thought experiment from, um, from, from Austin, J.L. Austin, although he, although he attributes to someone even earlier, um, Noel Smith, um, and he no so, no, uh, no relation to Jane Austen. <laughs> that's yeah, that actually yeah, funny. I, I don't. I wonder if that's why. Yeah, I never actually thought that if that's maybe why he chose the example. So he talks about Jane Austen. J.L. Austen talks about Jane Austen, and I and I forget. I think it's in a footnote, um, and so I kind of uh, riffed off of that and. Um, and use this example of, yeah, I mean, even something as simple as, can you read Emma? 
uh, is the yeah, question. Yeah. Well, what could so be a someone? Story? Yeah, walk through the example. It's it's somebody borrows his book or something. Yeah, yeah. So imagine, um, imagine he has, that he has only are, one copy of Emma. He's got right, one yeah, copy. One copy. You're uh, and so you let someone borrow. You're trying to get them excited about Jane Austen, just like you are. Doesn't have any pictures, so just let him keep it. Right, right. No pictures. That's how I think. <laughs> and and then and then I sort of pose the question: Once you've lent it, and it, you know it's no longer in your possession, right? Well, can you read Emma? And this again is one of those interesting cases where um, there's two there's two obvious but inconsistent answers. Um, on the one hand, obviously you can read Emma um, because you have read it before. You Focusing on the word "can," yeah, right, right. So, can you read Emma? Well, yes, yeah, yeah. You can read Emma. Is something that is readable, um, right? <laughs> and so, yes, of course you can read Emma. Anybody who yeah. can read at a certain level can read Emma. You know how obviously. to read, yeah. That's right. Um, and then it's. You know, it's nice to put it in a book because I can say, well, because you're reading these words right now, yes, you can read Emma. You are reading yeah, yeah. kinds of words that might be in a book like it's, Emma. It's legible. The copy is legible. It's yeah. not it's not watermarked or anything like that. Right. But then on the other hand, there's an obvious answer, no, which is, well, no, your only copy is gone. Like, go ahead. Go ahead and try right now. I dare yeah, you. Yeah, right, right. I, different sense I, of can. Right. And so That's that very simple. Different yeah, sense right. So that very simple question, can you read Emma? And you could even say, can you read Emma right now? Um, it's still equally ambiguous, I think. Um, uh, it just points out that... Um, ambiguous, let's define ambiguous, because that's a technical term. We kind of have a sense of what it is, but... Yeah, yeah. so there's two term. different interpretations of the term can. Um, and the, it's, word, the word by, the word by and ambiguity is, is really, uh, just remember that. It's got the word by in it, which means two, like bicycle, yep. two tires instead of unicycle or tricycle. Um, so, yeah. So it's got yeah. two different meanings and you don't know which one. Right. So there's one meaning that refers more to abilities or capacity, or I should capacities, um, you know, kind of like skills. Um, another example would be, um, can, you know, someone, while I'm asleep, can I speak English? Well, Yep. In one sense, obviously, yes, I have. So <laughs> yeah. there's a can of like ability and capacity. One one way it's often distinguished is there's ability, the can of ability, and the can of opportunity. So um, yeah, so like I'm saying yeah. like a like opening up a can. Um, so the the word can um, could mean I have the relevant capacities and skills and uh, abilities, or it could mean I'm in a position where you know I have the opportunity. So when I'm asleep, um, I I still have the ability to speak English, but I don't have the opportunity to speak. I mean, I suppose there could be sleep talking in my sleep, but um, so that's a really important distinction that is hidden in this ambiguity of of the word can, um, which is that sometimes we use it. And so maybe there's a, and actually I don't know. Maybe there's a language out there that has two different words. Um, that one which one which corresponds pretty closely to the ability version of can. And one which corresponds to the opportunity version, um, right, right. And so that would be interesting. Um, I actually haven't thought to look into it. Um, it would be difficult to. I guess it would be yeah. So a, a linguist might be a better um, person to do this sort of research. But um, I do know that there are other languages where they have different words for you know speaking of time, you know for mm -hmm. for tense or the other, and and you end up with like different intuitions about things. Yeah, but um, but the we don't but have different words. And so yeah, yeah. the same question can be ambiguous. Where you land on that, though, is you also say it's vague. 
And that's yes. a different quality. Uh, vague and ambiguity are not the same exact. Right, things. good. So then the, the putting example um, yeah. kind of produces the vagueness because, um, you know, he has this great example of like, well, um, you know, he says, imagine that I miss a short putt because I could have maybe even should have made it. Um, and again, <laughs> yeah. nothing... And right. you know, maybe, maybe for those who aren't golfers, just imagine, you know, hitting a dartboard or sinking a, sinking a ball on the, on the pool table. Um, it doesn't have to be a bar game, but whatever the, you know, so just imagine some game of skill where obviously you could have done it, but you just messed it up. Um, right. and in Ch those tagging cases, and underpass, <laughs> you're three feet away. There you go. Right. But if you're six and, feet you know, away, it doesn't you quite reach. Uh, yeah, you just wanted to fill in that, fill in those letters perfectly. <laughs> um, and so the problem is that it, it just seems obvious that um, even though I missed the six foot putt, um, I still could have made it. Mm -hmm. um, as you like increase the distance, yep. then 60 feet. Yeah. yeah, it becomes less obvious that I could have made it 60 yeah. foot, 60 feet, uh, a 60 foot putt. It's not true that I, I can make it in, in a in the typical sense of can, but mm -hmm. I could get lucky, right? It could still go in. So, so the, the vagueness there is that there are borderline cases between what counts as, you know, so if you just focus on the putting example, mm -hmm. you know, a one foot putt, I can make it and uh, almost always will. I mean, maybe one time out of a million, I wouldn't make it. Um, um, and then as you, um, as you, you're pretty good. You're pretty good, Garrett. I, well, I, I appreciate it. I'm I'm not. I, I'm definitely a, a duffer out there. Um, but but I can make a one a one foot putt. I um, I would screw up the one foot putt a million times. Uh, you know, ninety nine times out of a hundred. Okay. So well, that you know. Golf so so with vague vague is it's the same definition. It's not two definitions, but it's right. not clear. It's like bald. Yes. Bald. Um. Actually, I think bald is kind of ambiguous and vague also, but because it could mean no hair at all, and it could mean some hair. But actually, it might be the same definition in that, uh, like, if someone's just bald on their head, on the top of their head, but they have hair on the side, sometimes we call that bald. Right. Or balding, I guess. But uh, Right. Yeah. So I, you're right. A vague term um, has a single definition. Long hair, yeah. But there are borderline cases, which make it unclear when you've crossed over from right. term right. applies to it doesn't apply. So yeah, yeah with baldness, go. yeah, imagine someone with um, who's bald. Uh, he has one hair on his head. Lines. Is he bald still? <laughs> yeah, you can. Yeah, you add just add one hair at a time. Yeah, um, and eventually it will no longer be true to say this person is bald. Yeah, um, but it will. It won't be clear which hair made the difference um, yeah. because it doesn't seem like any single hair can make a difference. And so, so the progress in this chapter is, <clears throat> is alerting the student and the careful reader that language is like that. Sometimes, sometimes that we use the same spelling as, as C A N and we mean it could be ambiguity where there's two different definitions of that sucker. Or it could be that there's the same definition and and it's like uh, there's borderline cases and you just can't tell. Right. And maybe the puzzle kind of hinges on those qualities of the word. Yeah. So two people can be talking past each other Yeah. because they're, you know, they both think that their view is obvious, but what's right. happening is they're, um, you know, they're either 
using a different definition yeah. um, given an ambiguity, or maybe they're kind of like resolving the vagueness at yeah. different at a different point. And, um, this and that is, can be, yeah, progress. this is relevant to other skills too. Like this is why I, I'm a huge fan of philosophy for pre-law because yeah. legal issues, I mean, just think of the criminal cases, uh, involving weapons. Like, let's say you get pulled over and it's like a fourth amendment kind of an issue. You get pulled over. The officer says, do you have any weapons in the car? What do you mean by weapon? Do you mean there, there's, there's a little bit of an ambiguity there because, anything can be used as a weapon and has been used as a weapon in the history right. of mankind. I mean, right. from rocks, I mean, uh, Cain killed Abel. If he didn't use his hand, actually, if he did use his hands, the FBI yeah. statistics call those personal weapons. Um, yeah. but a fist can be a weapon, a sure. rock. I think one definition is when an artifact, a human made object is designed as a weapon. So for example, a firearm would fit yeah. that. But like, for example, some knives don't really fit that. They could be used. Like I was at a church function recently and it was somebody's birthday party. And I was just staring at this knife that they were using to cut the cake. It was like a scary horror movie knife and nobody was frightened about it because right. Right. It, it could be used as like a horrific weapon, a murder weapon, some kind of immoral thing. But uh, they were using it to cut the cake, and it was almost as if, as if they felt like it was designed to cut the cake. It wasn't designed. So if you had that in the kitchen in the, in the, or in your car, right. are you, are you uh, giving a false statement, which is a crime? Yeah. I mean, someone who puts a baseball bat under their bed um, is yeah, choosing it for it's obviously wasn't designed to be a weapon, right. but they are but choosing it, it for its weapon like properties. And right. that's why they're not putting a, a pool noodle under their bed. Under putting yeah, a baseball bat. You're, you're, it's a little odd to walk through the sporting goods and and you're like, um, you know, do you have any weapons? Oh, uh, never mind. I see the baseballs. Yeah, right over there. I yeah, exactly. Uh, and yet um, they can be quite effective. Yeah. So it, so the, the similar, you know, these kinds of can questions show up in the daily wavester as well. Yeah. And then for those who aren't familiar with um, Dale Webster is his name, his nickname is the daily wavester. Um, so he has the, the world record for most consecutive days of surfing. I was uh, blown away. Is, yeah, that a four, is that a real case? It's absolutely real. Yeah. 14,641. Wow. Um, so from September 3rd, 1975, Crazy to October 4th, 2015. So more than 40 years, he surfed at least three waves every day. Um, so if, if there's a, a documentary called Step into Liquid, which is about big wave surfing, mm -hmm. and it has a little, and you can find this clip online. Um, there's just like a little sidebar because he's not a big wave surfer necessarily. Um, there's a little sidebar um, that discusses this case and, and interviews him. And like, he talks about why he did it and his reasons are actually not that great. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and, and he clearly has, he's not a deep person. No. And I, ironically, <laughs> that's right. Um, he still has managed to, um, I forget how old he was when he made the decision. I don't know if he was married at the time already, but he, he was married. He had a daughter. 
So it didn't completely destroy his personal life, but mm. he it certainly limited his options career-wise yeah, no and kidding, otherwise. Kidding. And wow. you know, his wife died of uh I forget, I think it might have been cancer. Um, and you know, he was with her at the hospital, but not not while he was surfing. Like he still he still he had surfing. to go catch some waves. Um, oh my gosh. I, so I feel like this chapter would have been a good one for a picture. Uh, that's true you could look at old dale webster just, well and in the video or just a wave the video it shows like all of his boards it shows like all of his wetsuits that are all disintegrated it shows like this huge ball of surf wax um so there are some pictures there but but anyway so the the yeah. case is like imagine there's nobody more consistent about surfing than dale webster right and and so um and yet and so given given that picture then it seems like certain counterfactuals are true of him if he doesn't surf on this day you know imagine imagine he's still in the middle of the streak you know in the chapter i say imagine like the day he's going to set the new record like he yeah. he blew past the old right. record like right. ten thousand. he's he, one day away right he so has it's to like, hit three waves today mm -hmm. and he went he gets the record yeah he is immortalized um for this record um and so it seems true on that morning to say well if he doesn't go surfing if he refrains from surfing, then something catastrophic had to happen. I mean, he had to be completely incapacitated. Um, if if it were at all possible, he would do it. So so this conditional seems true. If he refrains from surfing, then something catastrophic would have to have happened. And another way, so that's a little bit of a complicated way of putting it, but essentially something in the past would have to have changed, right? So if we're imagining um, a scenario where he doesn't go surfing, well, we have to kind of go back and like he has to get injured in some serious way. There has to be some natural disaster of some sort. Um, and so so it seems like in a in a in an intuitively compelling way, um, something would have to have gone differently. At that moment of choice, he's staring at the waves about to run out there. Um, well, at that point, like he's he's gonna surf. And if if he yeah. rained, then we have to like sort of go back and change the story somehow because yeah. Right. of the type of person he is so that seems intuitive um mm -hmm. but al also um obviously if doing something otherwise requires changing the past yeah then it seems to be a good option <laughs> yeah um and uh, and so it seems like oh actually um so so this this gets us to the argument oh i guess um i guess he can't so we're back to the word can i guess he can't refrain from surfing you know, it's sort of inevitable or destined. Right. But wait a minute. Like when he's standing there in his wetsuit, staring at the waves, like there's no force that's compelling him. I mean, he ha he's committed to it. So there's like psychological forces going on. But um, but there's nothing that's like hold, you know, sort of like pushing him into the waves against his will. Right. Um, And so, of course, you can refrain from surfing. Right. Um, right. So there's this weird there's just this is a case where you have not just like a. um two conflicting viewpoints but you have almost like this this inconsistent triad where mm -hmm. you know nobody can change the past that seems obvious right it also seems obvious that if he were to refrain something in the past would have to be different um but it also seems obvious that he can refrain um do, do you think god can change the past that is a great question i i probably think no in the same way that god can't make contradictions true um so so i think i think god cannot do that i don't think it's any it doesn't reflect poorly on his uh, omnipotence right um you know so 
Yeah. So I, I don't think even God can change the past. Um, I do think that God, you know, God can do things such that if he were to do them, the past would have been different. So if you sort of yeah. put it in that counterfactual way. Yeah. Then, but I think we can do that too. I think we can do right. things such that if we did them, the past would have been different. Hmm. Um, but would have that, yeah, would have been. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's the puzzle about the daily wavester is that let's you know let's do one more. I, I there was one more the freedom to choose the good because it's such an important thing in politics. Great, uh, which is my no, area. Can, politics. Can do one more. Um, so yeah, how would you characterize this? The the, yes. the Saint Augustine one. So the way I set this up is a little bit of a, an appeal to the psychology literature. Um, you know, Barry Schwartz talks about the paradox of choice, mm-hmm. and how a lot of times he's more interested in in the psychology of happiness and satisfaction and things like that. Mm-hmm. What he points out is that for whatever reason, we're constructed in such a way that um, additional choices aren't always good for us. Um, yes, that's right. So, yeah. So at a certain point, obviously, if you're going, so you imagine the step from a certain number of choices, you know, the, you know, in choices to n plus one choices, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the step up from one choice to two is a, is a good one and, and almost right. always going to improve our situation. And then maybe that's true as you go to three and four and so on, but you get to a certain point, um, whether it's, um, choosing, uh, I think I mentioned where to go to college, choosing a retirement plan, choosing uh, a meal from the menu. And yeah. if, you, you know, if you've ever been to Cheesecake Factory, there's kind of a paradox of choice with uh, with their menu. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of a problem. Yeah, it is. Uh, and so he points out as a psychological point, this is not metaphysics, this is just psychology, but um, right. it, it just, it's just a matter of fact, empirical fact that we um, passed a certain point, which actually comes pretty soon. Yeah. Um, additional choices are bad for us. Yeah. So, so again, that's, that's a point about psychology and it, it's relevant to politics as well. Um, so does that undermine our free will? Well, that's, that I think situation? that's one interesting question is, um, does that just mean, um, you know, so what I think, what I think the puzzle is, is that, well, if free will is at bottom or in its essence, um, about having alternative possibilities or having or making alternative choices, right. choosing one thing rather than another. If that's the essence of free will, then it seems as though, um, and also if it's true that adding a third choice to a second is is a good thing, um, then it seems like we should just be able to keep adding choices indefinitely and it gets right. better and better. Yep. And maybe you want to say that, well, we're finite. It's like cable television. It's like yeah. well, when I grew up, there uh, we had like, seven channels or something that we didn't have cable right right and you had to get up and turn the channel yeah so i think it would be weird so there's, it's not um it's not a logical issue or um it's just it would be strange this is sort of like yeah um mavrodis talks about how the world would be a strange place if we have obligations that don't uh, if it were sort of a just a naturalistic world and we have obligations that don't redound to our benefit um and this is a similar thing the free will would be a strange thing if if the essence of free will is choices alternative choices but the more you get the worse off you are um free will yes. is a good thing we all want you it think yeah it, it's valuable and so right th- that kind of thinking prompts well maybe there are different ways of thinking about free will yes and that kind of comes to like well maybe free go. will is not you know obviously it involves alternative choices but maybe 
maybe at its root or um, mm-hmm. at the most fundamental level, free will is about making the right choice or making the good choice, choosing the good, as as Augustine might say. So choosing the so this is an example where getting into uh, you like you say the root there's a there's a deeper sense or intuition that philosophy can help us with getting at the root of what free will is really all about yes maybe right. it does involve alternative possibilities um do you think those are necessary for free will or i'm sorry um, for uh, for moral responsibility yeah so i it's a different issue we um, don't have to get into i it, do but. not right i do not so i i kind of have this like fall i'd say my fallback view so my goal is to like try to make try to preserve free will in the face of whatever threat or challenge might might come its way so that's my my methodology is all right seems like we have free will here's a challenge from theology or from science or from the social sciences and let's see if we can conceptualize free will in a way that is immune to that threat or resilient with respect to that threat. Um, that kind of shows up in the chapter on flip-flopping. But, um, and so that's kind of my stance. And then yeah. if it turns out that determinism, for example, does in fact rule out alternatives, then I think, well, I think it's still possible to ha- to be morally responsible even without those alternatives. So I view that as kind of a fallback position the freedom um, to choose the good—that's a—that's a historically very powerful, uh, right? That's right. And consideration. I think, yeah, and I think there's some. I think there's. It has the historical pedigree. Um, yeah. Your individuals like Saint Augustine. There's the contemporary defenders of it, but I think also there's something intuitive. Um, I, I I don't know how compelling. You know, I in exa- in the chapter I use an example of you know musical performance. Uh, we could talk about athletic performance, but I think there's a certain point. You know, you want to you want to have earned um, the skill and the ability, and it's not like you want to just have it downloaded into your head like in the Matrix. But <laughs> yeah. once you've once you've put in the work, um, although right. some might say just you know just go ahead and download it directly, but if once you've put in the work um, and gotten to a certain level of expertise, then it seems like the question. Then it seems like if somehow God or somehow you had gave you the offer or somehow you had the opportunity to. Um, so, you know what, um, if I can kind of eliminate the possibility of error, um, then I would choose that. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, it's not really interesting. So if I'm working on a piano piece, if I'm working on um, maybe some feat of, uh, you know, some other feat of, of endurance or strength or right. of some sort, um, you know, I, wa- I want to have earned it. But there's a certain point where, like, I'm not interested in being able to mess up, um, you know, I. Uh, and, and what I would rather be able to do is do it perfectly or, you know, reach the pinnacle. Um, and so there's something yeah. intuitive about that. I mean, and then, you know, translate or, you know, transfer those, those ideas into morality. Sure. And, you know, to me, so if I were given the choice um, of a pathway toward moral perfection, um, you have to be careful that it's not sort of a formula or an algorithm. Mm-hmm. But to me, I'm not really interested in, there's nothing attractive um, about the ability to make the wrong choice, you know, by itself. Um, usually failure is, is part of a, an attractive package that involves growth and development and hard work and yes. overcoming adversity. So that's very attractive, but the ability to make the wrong choice um, is not, you know, I, I, I can, um, I think there's a case to be made that, 
that's not really what we want when we want free will. And so that's, you know, and maybe, right. you know, right. that's, that's the alternative picture. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. in the end, um, the alternative possibilities idea is, is more compelling, but I did uh, think that would be a good opportunity. This chapter would be a good opportunity to kind of try to cast a vision. Um, when when well. you start in, in philosophy and you have your ideas that you have at the beginning, when you start, right. How much of this, I mean, I think you were very well set up to study this profession and, and to make these contributions professionally, because you studied with John Martin Fisher and Gary mm -hmm. Watson, right? That's right. Dr. Doctor, yeah. what was that like being set up? Is it, did you have your ideas first and then you just try to defend those or did you genuinely feel like, Oh, I'm going to work through this without with totally um, ready for what comes. <laughs> even yeah, if I change my mind. Yeah. How does that work? So being at UC Riverside was a really fantastic place to study free will and more responsibility. Um, and yeah, John Martin Fisher, especially was, was my advisor there and um, was quite uh, quite an excellent advisor. And yeah. And, and um, uh, Gary Watson was there. Um, lots of other faculty who, um, who are really excellent. Um, and yeah, so I, I think coming, yeah, uh, coming in, I had certain, I guess, predilections or certain kinds of um, leanings. And some of those were, were confirmed and reinforced. And some of those were, um, uh, were dismantled, I guess you could say. Um, hmm. One thing that's really great about uh, a place like Riverside is that a lot of uh, and this is especially true of, of John Martin Fisher. You know, a lot of his PhD students would write dissertations that were very much in disagreement with with his, you know, his considered view. And uh, in, in essence, a lot of his students would write a dissertation about why he was wrong um, on things. <laughs> and he says was a lot about him, right? Exactly. He was more than happy to supervise uh, that kind of dissertation. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think I think it's a combination. I think you have to you have to you know you mentioned this earlier, like you have to sort of make it your own and commit. Um, yeah. as early as you reasonably can, but then you also have to kind of hold your views loosely and be open yeah. to being persuaded otherwise. And that, that's a tough balance to, to, to find. Yeah. Well, it's totally relevant to what we've been talking about, uh, this Absolutely. whole time. So, Absolutely. well, I know that, uh, we, this has been very valuable for me and I think it's going to be very valuable for lots of people in the future, as long as this record exists in the library of whatever podcasts are out there. And so we thank you, Garrett Pendergraft, for coming on and sharing with us your uh, take on free will and human agency published by Rutledge University, or sorry, Rutledge University, Rutledge yeah. Press. Uh, so thanks, Garrett. Thank you. I very much appreciate the opportunity to really, it was a really enjoyable conversation and um, it's always good to be able to chat with you again, Lucas. So I appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, I look forward to future conversations. And I'm also I'm always yeah. very interested in feedback, um, especially okay. on the accessibility of the book. Um, you know, anybody who wants to email me um, at my okay. address um, or check me out on Twitter or whatever, I'm very happy to to engage uh, about the book. Great. Okay. We'll uh, we'll link this in the in the notes. All right. Thank you.